And would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, which you can find on page 970 in your church Bibles. This morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 15. So let's give our attention to God's Word in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come, he who has ears to hear. Dear congregation, every story has its characters with different roles and different parts assigned by the author of that story. And although every character in the story is valuable, there are some characters with a more central role. And in the story that God has written in the pages of history, human history, we see a narrative of promise and fulfillment. And we, congregation, find ourselves in that story of God. A story of redemption alongside countless other characters, each with an assigned place in the storyline and each with a role of differing degrees of significance and importance in that story. And this morning, I'd like us to consider this passage in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, which focuses on one character in that story, in particular, John the Baptist. This is a character that we tend not to give much thought to. We'd rather hear about Moses and David or Peter or Zacchaeus. But John the Baptist, huh? who was that guy again? The guy who ate locusts? That guy? John the Baptist. But as we're going to see, Jesus will speak about John in the highest terms. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist is in prison and his own disciples have been sent to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Are you Messiah or shall we look for another? And in reply, Jesus tells those disciples earlier in this chapter to report back to John in prison about the things that Jesus has done, healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching the good news to the poor. In other words, his answer is, yes, I am the one who is to come. I am Messiah. There's no need to look for another. And this morning, by considering John the Baptist and his place in the story of God's redemption, we're going to learn about our place 
in that story. And we're going to learn about Christ, to whom John was pointing. So this character, John the Baptist, sheds light not only on us, but also on Christ. Let's give our attention to three characters in the text, so to speak. First, the one who is more than a prophet. Second, the one who is least in the kingdom. And third, the one who comes after Elijah. So first, the one who is more than a prophet. As John's disciples leave in verse 7, Jesus begins speaking to the crowds before him, and he asks them a series of chiding questions. Three times he asks, what did you go out to the wilderness to see when you went to see John the Baptist? And the first time he asks, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? That is, the type of preacher that plays to the crowd and is swayed by popular opinion? Is that what you went out to see? Because if you did, you're in for a surprise. John is no reed. John is a sturdy and stable oak. We know from the Gospels that John the Baptist did not sugarcoat his preaching when he was preaching to the crowds. He was crystal clear. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He was direct and blunt, we could say. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So he wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. Second time round, Jesus asks, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Like a man dwelling in royal palaces of the king? But again, that's not who John the Baptist was. John is more sandpaper than silk if you get what I mean. He's rough, not refined. He wears camel's hair and leather, according to Scripture. His breath smells of locust and wild honey. So we see that John was neither so conformed to the people that he was shaken by their opinion, nor was he so separated from the people that he dwelt in king's houses. And perhaps there's something to say about how we ought to live as well. Not so conformed, but not so separated. The third time round, though, Jesus tells them what John really is. A prophet. And in fact, more than a prophet. This is Jesus' evaluation of John. John is the one who speaks forth the very words of God. He's a prophet. And in fact, according to verse 13, he is the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he is also more than a prophet. Jesus explains what he means by this in verse 10, quoting from the last book of the Old Testament. What is that book? The book of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. But notice, congregation, how Jesus introduces this quote. This is he of whom it is written. So track with me here. John is not he through whom this is written, not he by whom this is written, but he of whom this scripture in Malachi is written. It was written of him, about him. Which means the messenger spoken of in Malachi, the prophesied forerunner who will point to Jesus 
is none other than this man, John the Baptist. John is more than a prophet because not only does he prophesy, but he himself is prophesied about. He is not only the bringer of prophecy, he is the object and the content of prophecy in Scripture itself. Scripture spoke about John's coming, his voice calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, we're going to circle around to this quote from Malachi in just a moment, but look with me at what Jesus says in the next verse, in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, this is an astonishing statement. Because Jesus is now broadening the scope. Do you see that? Not only is John the greatest of the prophets, he is the greatest of all men born of women, all human beings up to that point in history. No one born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. Not even Abraham, not Moses, not David, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Why? Because of the unique and pivotal role that John has in God's redemptive story. He's an important character. John was great because of who he was preparing and pointing to. Because of who he was paving the way for. Brothers and sisters, our greatness is only ever in relation to Jesus Christ. We are only great insofar as we serve and point to and testify to Jesus. We're not great in and of ourselves. It's only in relation to Jesus. And that's true for each and every one of us here today. But it was particularly true, uniquely true, of John the Baptist. Because he was the God-ordained forerunner of Jesus. The stage setter the way preparer prophesied from of old. John had a privileged place in God's story that no one else had and no one else ever will have in history. His unique role was to prepare the way for the Messiah and to testify to him when he appeared in the flesh. And unlike all the prophets before him, John actually set his eyes upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He beheld Jesus, the one whose day Abraham looked forward to and rejoiced in. John chapter 8. The one whose glory Isaiah had a glimpse of. John chapter 12. No prophet other than John saw this incarnate Son of God in the flesh. No prophet other than John touched the Son of God when he baptized him in the Jordan. So no one was greater than John up to that point. And yet, continues Jesus, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's a staggering statement which leads us to our second point, the one who is least in the kingdom. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4, 
verse 17, Jesus announced that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As did John. We're told Jesus went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In chapter 10, he sent out his apostles with the same message that he had preached. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here in verse 11, Jesus speaks again about this kingdom. And he says, John is the greatest among those born of woman, but as great as John is, the one who is least, the smallest in the kingdom of God is greater than John. And here's why that is the case. It's because Jesus has begun a new era with his arrival. An era of fulfillment. He has ushered in a kingdom from above. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Through faith in Jesus, people are becoming a part of that kingdom. A kingdom that is not of this world. And even the one who is least in that kingdom is greater in status than John the Baptist. Think about what that means, congregation. The newest believer stumbling through their Bible, trying to find the book of Exodus. The humblest believer on the very first rung of sanctification, struggling with all manner of sins and beginner vices. The lowliest believer, weighed down by every convicting sermon not aimed at them, wrestling with a lack of assurance of salvation, struggling with consistency in the faith, or the smallest member of the covenant community, like Hendrick, all stand in a greater place than all the Old Testament prophets and even John the Baptist himself. You, brothers and sisters, stand in a greater place, have greater status than John the Baptist and all of the prophets. Is that not an amazing thought? I mean, this is the John who prepared, literally prepared the way for Christ and beheld him with his own eyes. And Jesus says, you and I and the least among us and all who are a part of his kingdom are greater than that John, than that prophet. Why? Because John looked forward to this new era. He proclaimed this kingdom, but he was not himself a part of it in its arrival. Now, don't misunderstand me here. This is not to say that John was never saved. We're not talking about his soul and his salvation. Only that his role in this big story was as preparer, as forerunner, as the herald of the coming Messiah. We could say John was the 11.59 p.m. of December 31st right on the cusp of that transition to the new. And although he saw the dawning of a new era, the new year, we could say, he still belonged entirely to the old year, the old era, to yesterday. But on the other hand, we find ourselves in that, that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It is at hand. The new era has come because Messiah has come. 
And we have been made partakers in Christ's kingdom. And this is something to marvel at. We live in the time of fulfillment. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when we can taste of God's redemption. We live in the light of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. We live together under the reign of Christ. We live under his exaltation and his intercession. We know his grace. We know the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and among us on this side of Pentecost. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter 1, verse 12. It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving you, not themselves, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit. And these are things into which angels long to look. At this point in the history of redemption, we know things and we have tasted things and we know of spiritual realities that John the Baptist couldn't have dreamed of. The things that the children will learn in Sunday school, the things that Hendrick will come to know at home and at church and through your encouragement and teachings are things into which the angels long to look. Just give us a peek. Give us a taste of the things that you taste in Christ, they say. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life isn't a glamorous life, is it? This church here isn't a glamorous church. We feel our smallness. We may wonder whether anything of significance is really being achieved in and through us. But instead of giving in to discouragement, remember when and where we stand. We stand in the new era of Jesus Christ. We and our children are part of a new covenant, the better covenant, founded on better promises, Hebrews 7 and 8. We stand in the grace and the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed to us in Scripture. Remember this, brothers and sisters, and praise God for it, and treat one another as those who have dignity and a high standing in Jesus Christ. Now, if you look with me briefly at verse 12, it says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. There's various ways to understand that, but for the sake of time, one way to understand it is that this violence is aggressive opposition. The kingdom has suffered opposition and hostility from its violent enemies. And this, I think, makes sense in its surrounding context. Right before our passage we see that John has been imprisoned. There's opposition. And following our passage, Jesus points out that people say John has a demon and that Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard. Again, opposition. So the kingdom of heaven has drawn near because the king of heaven has drawn near. But the world continues in its opposition and hostility against the king. And this is a sad reality, brothers and sisters. The world's opposition 
against the king and his kingdom culminated in that time in his crucifixion. And that opposition continues today against his church. We who belong to that kingdom and follow that king face hostility and violent opposition. Why then do we carry on believing? Why do we keep on following him? And this brings us to our third and final point. We keep on following him because he is the one who comes after Elijah. The one who comes after Elijah. And that's a hugely significant point. In verse 14, Jesus calls John, Elijah who is to come. And this takes us back to the book of Malachi. The closing verses of Malachi 4 speak of a coming Elijah who will be sent by the covenant God of Israel. And this is the same figure that God calls my messenger in Malachi, the messenger that will prepare the way for Messiah. And Jesus mentioned this earlier in the passage. Do you remember? Let's take a look closely at that quotation. Verse 10. It reads, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Let's unpack that. I, that is God, send my messenger, John, before your face. Here's a question for you, though. Who is you in that sentence? Your face. We see that it's Jesus. Because it goes on to say, who will prepare your way, Jesus' way, before you. But here's the thing. In the book of Malachi... It says, the messenger will prepare the way before me, that is, before God who is speaking. It doesn't say before you. And here's why that's important, because Jesus, in quoting Malachi with this slight modification, is placing himself in the place of God. He's saying, I am the God of Israel, the God who was speaking in the Old Testament. The messenger sent by God, the Elijah to come, was sent before Jesus, who rightfully stands in God's place. As we know from Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, literally, in the flesh. And he says in verse 14, if you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah who is to come. Don't overlook that little phrase, if you are willing to accept it. Why might the crowds be unwilling to accept that John is the prophesied Elijah to come? Why is that such a hard statement? It's because if John is Elijah, then Jesus is Messiah. If John is the one who prepares the way, then Jesus is the one whose way is prepared for. The Savior the promised one, the one who is anointed by God and who proves it by healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching the good news to the poor. He is the one whose yoke is easy and burden is light, the one who gives our souls rest and salvation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, says Jesus. So congregation, I ask you, do you, have ears to hear this this morning. That Jesus Christ is the King 
the fulfiller of God's promises, the Messiah who was to come. Who do you take Jesus to be? A reed shaken in the wind? A man in royal palaces? A good teacher who handed down good morals? A life guru who taught us self-improvement? A piece of religious insurance for the afterlife? Who do you take Jesus to be? Our passage shows us that Jesus is much more than all those things I've just listed. Think through this with me. If John, as the one who points to Jesus, is great and is the greatest of all those born of women, how much more is Jesus great as the one pointed to? If those in the kingdom of heaven are great, how much more is Jesus great as the one who brings and inaugurates that kingdom? John the Baptist is more than a prophet. And so is Jesus. But not only is Jesus more than a prophet, Jesus is more than more than a prophet. He is insurpassable. He's not simply a prophet among many prophets in the past. He is the prophet of God who reveals God fully and perfectly. He is not only the communicator of God's word. He is himself the word become flesh. It's easy to become so familiar with the Bible and these truths and the gospel and who Jesus is that we can lose a sense of wonder at the extraordinary things we believe in. Well, let us recognize, dear brothers and sisters, what a momentous period we live in right now. You know, during the pandemic, there was that phrase that came up so often, we live in unprecedented times. And it was true, unprecedented times. But in God's story of redemption, we live in truly unprecedented times. We partake in unprecedented benefits and privileges in Jesus Christ. And we have a fuller understanding of those benefits through Scripture than any prophet in history or any angel in heaven. That's what we have in Christ. And so may that move us then to follow Christ despite all opposition, to serve Christ with excitement and zeal, and to teach Christ to our children and to one another. In the kingdom of God, we are great because the one who has brought that kingdom is great. May he receive all the glory and honor forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, what a privilege it is to live in this momentous time of the new covenant, the new era ushered in by your Son. Help us to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel and the great salvation we have received in Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.